I want to begin this morning with a question. Um, have you ever known someone who was a professing believer? Uh, they said they were Christian, said they, they followed Christ, right? all, all, all outward purposes that seemed like that was the case, and then they fell away from the faith. They walked away. They, they, they said, I'm no longer a Christian. I no longer follow Christ. I've changed my mind. I don't believe anymore. Have you ever known someone like that? My, my guess is that almost all of us in this room have multiple people that come to our minds right away. People that, that were we, we thought were with us and, and were believing, and, and then they weren't. And we could talk a lot about that, and we will some today, but the, the follow-up question I want to ask this morning is how did that make you feel? How does that make you feel? What, what, what feelings and emotions come into your own heart as you consider that person and, and, and they're, they're walking away from Christ and they're and their disbelief that set in in their lives. I know for myself that in reference to them, I feel sadness. In reference to them, I feel grief. I feel desire for them to come back to the faith. But also know that I feel, in reference to myself, a bit of concern, that, that, that it leads to feelings of anxiety, that it, that it leads to feelings of fear. If, if that could happen to them, then what's to say that could not happen to me? That they, they seemed as genuine in their faith as, as I am. We were the same. Our paths were the same. We did the same things together. We served together. We went on mission trips together. We, we worshiped together. And so it leads to fear. It leads to, it leads to questions. It leads to doubt. These are the types of emotions that I think we wrestle with when, 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 we, when we see this. Now, we, we could think about it purely on, a, on just a, a theological, intellectual level, and, and, and we will some today and see the answers that, that the Word of God gives, but... At an emotional level, at, at a, at a down-to-real-life level, when we see someone who professed to be a Christian walk away from the faith, it affects us. It makes us ask hard questions. We're in a series in First and Second Thessalonians, and last week we dealt with chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, which is a, a pretty interesting text, isn't it? We, we looked at the day of the Lord and how before that day comes, Paul says that a, a figure known as the man of lawlessness is going to be revealed. And, and that when this, when this figure is revealed, this antichrist figure that comes, he said that there's going to be a great rebellion, a, a great apostasy, a great falling away from the faith. That's what he said in, in chapter 2, verse 4, that the man of lawlessness will come and the rebellion will come. And then later in the chapter, he, he says that this, this lawless one is going to come with wicked deception 
and that people are going to be deceived and, 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 and deluded, and they're going to follow him, and they're going to be condemned. As Paul says this to the Thessalonians, and he's, and he's saying this to correct this, this false teaching that they were encountering, that the day of the Lord had already come, Paul, Paul also knows that, that as he's writing these words, that new questions are coming up in the Thessalonians' minds. Did he just say that, that there's going to be a great many people who are deceived? And, and, and fall away and, and follow this figure? And, and, and if that's the case, Paul, then how do I know that's not going to happen to me? What if, what if I'm one of the ones who is deceived? What if I'm one of the ones who falls away? And so in, in this next section, Paul pastorally addresses this concern that he knows will be rising in their hearts as he describes this great apostasy with, with this message. Stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. That, that, that's the message of 2, 13 through 17. That is what Paul wants the church to do, is to stand firm. And, and this morning, we're going to look at what he says to them, and, and we're going to, as we, as we do, we're going to answer this question, how, how should we feel about, about this idea of, of people who profess Christ falling away. And what does that have to do with us? How should we feel about that? How should we respond to that? What should we do? What should we know? So this morning, church, we, we, we're being called to stand firm in the faith, knowing that one day, and it already happens in smaller ways all the time, but, but one day there will be a great falling away that occurs, but, but God calls us to stand firm. Now, I know I've already raised more questions in this introduction than I've answered. And so let's get into the text and start looking at what the Lord has said. So we're going to see three perspectives on this call to stand firm. Three perspectives of Paul's call to stand firm. And let's read 13 through 17, and then we will we'll focus in on this first perspective. So chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as firstfruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Three perspectives on Paul's call to stand firm. And the first one comes in verses 13 and 14. Paul gives them an assurance. You will stand firm. It's where he begins. He gives them an assurance that you will stand firm. Look at what he says first. He says, but we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Now, how does that verse start, church? With a contrast, right? But we ought to give thanks to God for you. So, so Paul is setting up a contrast between you, the Thessalonian church, and who? These people in verses 9 through 12 who fall away. These people who are deceived, these people who are condemned, he, he, he says to them, but we thank God for you. you. You are not in that category. 
he, he, he makes a different category. So we need to see what's this contrast that he's making. So, so let's look back a little bit more closely at 9 through 12. Here's what he said about those who fall away. He said that the lawless one comes by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for who? Those who are perishing. Those who are perishing because, why? They refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not what? Believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So, so, so we need to really see what Paul is saying about this, this group of people who's going to fall away. Now, Paul uses the language of apostasy. He uses the language of falling away. But what he says here is it's very clear that these people are not actually saved. You see, he says they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. So, so, so he's already telling us here that these people who fall away, they didn't actually love the truth. And therefore, they were not actually saved. He says in verse 12 that they had pleasure in unrighteousness. And so when we ask the question, who's, who's falling away? Who's he talking about? Paul is talking about visible Christians, professing Christians, professing people of God, those, those who take the name of God and, and say, we follow God, we are part of the church. But in reality, in their heart, they don't love the truth. They've not actually truly believed on Jesus Christ. They are not actually saved. They are perishing. And so what this tells us is, is this, that when someone falls away from the faith, they're not losing their salvation. They're demonstrating that they were never saved. That, that, that is what Paul says here. Yes, we see, we see people fall away. But when they do, they demonstrate that they may have believed at some level, but they refused to love the truth. And they still had pleasure in unrighteousness. Their God was still themselves. And, and Paul says, but we thank God for you. So that, that, that's, not, that's not who you are, Thessalonians. And then who, who, who are they? He says, brothers beloved by the Lord. So he says, these people who fall away, they love unrighteousness. They refuse to love the truth, but you are brothers who are loved by God. That's, that's the identity of the Thessalonians. You, you are loved by God. The Lord Jesus Christ has set his love on you. And he says, we thank God for you. And then he tells them why he thanks God, why, why he's so confident that he can thank God for them. He, he says, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved. And so what, what that phrase is saying, you can, you can also translate that. You might see a footnote in your Bible. God chose you from the beginning to be saved. He chose you as the first fruits. But the idea is that before we did anything, before, Paul says in Ephesians, before the foundations of the earth and eternity passed, God looked down into redemptive history, into what he would do, and he saw you and he chose you. He, he made you his in eternity past. He, he set his love on you then. And then he says, through sanctification by the Spirit, 
and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel. So in eternity past, God chose you to be saved. He said about you, you will be saved. I'm going to save that person. And then in time, here's what God did. He brought the gospel to you. Someone came to you and they spoke to you the words of life. They spoke to you about Jesus Christ, the Son of God who came to earth, lived a sinless life, died a sacrificial death for our sins, rose again, seated in heaven, invites all to come to Him and trust in Him and receive forgiveness for their sins. Someone came to you with that gospel and when they, when they spoke those words to you and, and, they, and they made a call to you to believe what happened in your heart was that you heard the call of God. He says, to this, God called you through the gospel. So when someone came and preached the gospel to you in an external way, God was doing a work in your heart of drawing you to himself. He called you to himself. This is called God's effective calling, that, that he, he drew you, he, he drew you in and, and made you his own. He sanctified you by the Spirit. That, that, that means the Spirit came into your life and he, he set you apart for God. The Spirit took you out of, of the mass of, of world, the, the world who was dead in their sins, and He said, I'm going to set this person apart as the Lord's. They, they, they belong to God, and then He called you through the gospel. He gave you belief in the truth. You see that Paul puts belief as one of the things God called you to? He says, to this He called you. Which means that, that it, wasn't, it was not just our wise decision to believe. It was that God gave you belief in the truth. To this he called you. So in eternity past, God chose you to be saved. In time, God called you to be saved. He sent the gospel to you and you believed the truth. And then what did he say? So that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So, so, so one day in eternity future, Jesus is going to be reigning in glory over his creation. Redemptive history will be complete. Eternity will begin. He'll be in glory, and we will obtain that glory. We will see it. We will become like it. We will share in it forever. So eternity past, God chose you. In time, God called you. Eternity future, God has sealed you for that day. You'll obtain his glory. And all that to the effect that Paul, Paul is essentially saying to them, you will stand firm on that day. You're not part of that group that's going to be deceived. You're not going to fall away because God chose you. God called you. God has sealed you to obtain the glory of Jesus Christ. This leads us to ask, I just want to say one more thing just to make it clear, to make it very clear this morning, those God has saved will never fall away. That is what the scripture teaches. Those God has saved will never fall away because he chose us before the foundations of the earth. And he chose us for eternity with Jesus in glory. If he started that in our lives, he's not going to let that fail. So those God has saved will never fall away. Those who do fall away were never truly saved. But we have to ask, what makes Paul so confident about the Thessalonians? What makes him so confident about, about them specifically? And, and for this, we need to remember what Paul has said in these letters. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, listen to what Paul said then. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because... Okay, so see what he said there. We, we know he's chosen you because... Why? 
because our gospel came to you not only in word, but in power and the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So back in 1 Thessalonians, Paul said, We know God has chosen you because you evidence the fruit of the Spirit in your life. We know He's chosen you because you have joy in affliction. We know He's chosen you because you received the Word with full conviction. We know He's chosen you because you're an example to all the believers. That's how we know He's chosen you. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he says something very similar. He said, We thank God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love you have for each other is increasing. So we know that you're His. We know He's done this because you have faith that it shows itself in love. It's not just a dead faith. It's a living faith. You're loving each other more and more. So Paul looks at their lives and he sees this evidence of grace. He sees these fruits of the Spirit. And, and, and therefore he says to them, I know that you have been chosen by God. I know it. And I know that because he chose you, that means that he is going to save you in the end. You don't need to be afraid that you're going to fall away one day because I've seen what God has done in your life. Paul's confidence that God has saved them comes from the complete transformation he sees in them. So what do we do with this? Paul's message to them is, you will stand firm. That's the first thing he says. So so what we want to do this morning, this is an application, is, is that we want to get assurance. The Lord does not want you, if you are a Christian, to not have assurance about that. The Lord wants you to be assured of your faith. And here's the thing. We need both both theological assurance and experiential assurance. Let me explain what I mean by that. We need theological assurance, which is what Paul's doing here, that whoever God saves will never lose their salvation. We need to be convinced from the Scripture that if God began that work in us, He will never let it fail. And the ground, the final ground of that assurance is grace. It's His grace that Jesus has paid for all our sins, that there is no penalty left for us to pay, that we will not face wrath because God has set us in grace. And if He set us in grace, then what could separate us from Him? The cross assures us that because God has saved us, we'll never lose it. But we also need experiential assurance because here's the thing, that, that, that stuff is just objectively true. Those are facts that are just out there. But we need to ask, well, has He saved me? Has He saved me? Because someone could believe all of that about the gospel, all of that about God. They could believe he's sovereign, that he saves those who come to him, that they'll never lose, lose their salvation. But then they ask, have I believed? Am I saved? Paul knows about the Thessalonians because he sees them in their lives. And so he sees them, so I know God shows you, but, but, but do you know this morning? Do you have that assurance that, that you have been saved? And so here's what you need to do. You need to examine your faith. And Paul calls believers to do this often, to test themselves, to examine their faith. And so this morning, here's what you need to ask yourself. Three questions. First, do you believe the gospel? not, Not have you believed the gospel, not did you make a decision to believe the gospel, but this morning, right now, do you believe the gospel? Do you believe that there is a holy creator God who made you, that you're accountable to him, 
made you for his glory? Do you believe that you have sinned against him and that you deserve hell, you deserve death, you deserve wrath, that you can't do anything to save yourself? Do you believe that this God in his love and grace sent his son to be the Savior and that Jesus lived a sinless, righteous life and that he died a sacrificial death in your place, that he rose again and that forgiveness can be found in him alone? And do you believe that one day Jesus will return and all those who repented and believed will be saved and all those who did not will be condemned? Do you believe that? Now secondly, do you love the God of the Gospel? We see in these verses the priority of love in our faith. A faith that is not fueled and filled with love for God is not saving faith. Now, our love will need to grow throughout our whole Christian lives. Our love is not perfect for God, but, but, but when God loves us, when we, when we see His love in the Gospel, it births love for Him in us. We love because He first loved us. And so questions you can ask yourself to, to help answer this question about do you love the God of the Gospel is, is do, do you do you want to be with Him? Do, do you actually delight in worshiping Him? Do you, do you pursue Him for His sake and not for His gifts? Do you, do you give yourself to His commands because you want, to, you want to follow Him? You want to know Him more? Do you love the God of the Gospel? And then third, are you being transformed by the Gospel? And again, that's, that's a present tense question. Look at your life right now. Are you being transformed by the Gospel? Do you see God making you more holy? Do you see change happening in your life? Do you see yourself becoming a, a holier husband, a, a more loving parent, a, a more gracious, merciful neighbor? Do you, do you see God changing you from the inside out through the gospel? Because, because that's where Paul can finally say to the Thessalonians, I see it. I see it in you. Therefore, I know God's chosen you. Therefore, you can know that you will stand firm. So do you believe the gospel? Do you love the God of the gospel? Are you being transformed by the gospel? Ask yourself these questions. Invite someone into your life to also help you answer these questions like Paul could do with the Thessalonians. If I could sit with each one of you, I'm so thankful I can, I can look at you in the eye and say, I see these things in you. I see the fruit of God's grace. I, I see what God has done. I see that you love the God of the gospel. That, that makes me know that God has chosen you. And if he's chosen you, that means you're going to stand firm. You're not going to fall away. And then based on what you see, respond. If, 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 you, if you come to the conclusion, no, I, I do not have that type of faith, then pray for God to save you. Ask Him to save you. And, and, and even if you are known as a believer to everyone around you, don't let that stop you. It's not worth it. Pray to God, God, save me. Give me the real thing. If you aren't sure, if you don't have assurance, if you don't know one or the other, then pray, pray God, show me. Show me where I really am, because I, I really don't know. And if you do, then give thanks, like Paul gives thanks. Give thanks to God for saving you. How often, church, do you thank God for saving you? That should be the front thing in our minds every single day. First thing we pray to God every day, Lord, thank you for saving me. Thank you for choosing me. Thank you for calling me. Thank you for sealing me for that day. It's all you. Thank you, Lord. So, 
you will stand firm. Secondly, you must stand firm. Verse 15, exhortation from Paul, you must stand firm. Paul says, so then, brothers, stand firm. It's a surprising logic, really. Uh, you think if God, if we will stand firm, if God's already sealed the deal, then why does it matter what we do? But that's not how the Bible speaks about these things. The assurance that God will complete our salvation does not negate our responsibility to stand firm. God's sovereignty does not cancel out our responsibility. It's just the opposite. God has secured your salvation from the beginning, so then stand firm. Because He's done this, stand firm. The assurance that we will stand firm is is actually what motivates us to stand firm. And I want to read something to you this morning that I think will help us grasp this concept of how assurance that God will hold us and that we will stand firm leads to our desire to do it and our ability to do it. This is from a book called Stop Asking Jesus Into Your Heart by J.D. Greer. Susan Atkinson gave this to me, and I was reading it this week and, and just thought this is Perfect for this sermon on Sunday. This is so helpful. And so just let me read a little bit to you from this book to explain what Paul's doing. He says, so then, stand firm. He says, I've heard people argue that God doesn't want us to have assurance. They suppose that this kind of assurance is presumptuous on our part, if not downright arrogant. Furthermore, wouldn't God get more out of us by holding the possibility of salvation over our heads? the way an employer might motivate their staff with the threats of layoff and bonuses. I can say with certainty that God wants you to have certainty about your salvation. He changes, encourages, and motivates us not by the uncertainty of fear, but by the security of love. In fact, I'll be so bold as to say that your spiritual life will really never take off until you have assurance of your salvation. Until you know that you are His and He is yours, your obedience will be limited. Your love will be stifled. Your confidence will be shaky. Your courage will be minimal. Listen to this. It's only through assurance of love that we find the strength to endure all manner of opposition, doubt, and trial. How can you stand against a hostile world if you aren't assured that God and you are leaving it all for? How can you take up the cross if you're not convinced of your resurrection? How can you really jump with abandon into the darkness if you're not convinced there's a Savior who's going to catch you. It's the joy of knowing beyond doubt that you belong to God that makes all of these things possible. You'll never give up your life in radical obedience until you are radically assured of His radical commitment to you. See what he's saying there? It makes so much sense. Why, if my life is unraveling, if trials are coming, and if I'm not sure that God is actually for me, then, then, then how will I stand through that? But if I know that God is for me, if I know that I am His, if I know I belong to Him, then I can stand through anything. Because I know that He's going to be there. He's going to catch me. He's going to see me through it. Because we know we will stand firm, we must stand firm. So then, stand firm. And then Paul explains it more. He says, hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. And so here's Paul specifies what we're talking about this morning. What what does he mean when he says stand firm? To stand firm is to hold on to the gospel. 
He says the traditions that they were taught, but, but he's not using traditions the way that we use traditions, like that church has their traditions. We, that, that's exactly the opposite of what he's talking about. He's saying the, the traditions that we taught in our word and our letter, the, the, the teachings of Jesus Christ, Christ crucified, the, the, the gospel of first importance that he died and rose and ascended into heaven, these things are of first importance. And anything else that, that is related to that gospel, the, these are the traditions we taught. Remember, someone's coming to this church and they're telling them the day of the Lord's already happened. He's saying, don't believe that. Hold on to what we taught you. Remember what we said. Remember what's of first importance. Know what God has said. And remember, he's, he's writing this at the time before we actually they had New Testaments. And so he says, through our spoken word or a letter. But today, where, where are these traditions found? They're, they're found right here. Right? They're, they're in our, our New Testaments is where we, we hear these traditions. We hear this gospel. They're preserved in the writings of the New Testament. And so stand firm and hold on. Just, just get a picture in your mind of someone standing firm and holding on. If they're doing that, then what does that mean? It means that something's coming, right? It means that they are, they are facing resistance. It means that something is seeking to move them. He's not just calling them to stand firm and hold on because the Christian life is easy. He's saying, saying the Christian life is hard. He's saying that there, there are hurricane force winds that are going to come at your faith, and you need to plant your feet in the ground, and you need to hold on tight so that you are not moved from where you stand. So, so brace yourself, church. You need, that's what Paul's calling you to brace yourselves. Brace yourselves against the winds of suffering that are coming. The suffering of losing a family member or spouse the suffering of losing a job, the suffering of persecution. Brace yourselves for those things. Stand firm. Hold on. Brace yourselves against the winds of temptation. Brace yourself against the, the temptation to impurity. Brace yourself against the temptation in a difficult marriage. Brace yourself against the temptation to, to be impatient with your children and, 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 and resort to Discipline that's unworthy of the Lord. Brace yourself against these temptations that will come to you. Brace yourselves against the winds of false teaching that are all around us. Stand firm and hold on. These are, these are active instructions. We are called to stand firm. And, and, and I believe that, because I know, church, that, that by God's grace... That, that many of you have a, a high view and a good biblical view of God's sovereignty in your salvation. Praise God for that. that. That gives us assurance. But don't let that lead you to passiveness in your Christian life. You will stand firm and you must stand firm. So brace yourself. Get your footing by actively learning, embracing, applying the truth of Scripture in your life. Actively do these things. Learn the catechism questions from Bill because these are footings for you to stand on when life gets hard. Do this together. Get, brace yourself because your faith is going to be assaulted over and over again in this life. You will stand firm. You must stand firm. And finally, Paul tells them you can stand firm. You can. And he does this by way of a prayer. An intercession in verses 16 and 17. 
He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father. He, 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 he turns to the Lord at this point. So he doesn't, just, he doesn't just assure them, You will stand, and then say, And you must stand, and then walk away. He, he says, You will stand, and you must stand, and now I'm going to pray to God that He would help you stand. This is, this is instructive for us, church. Prayer is where you will stand firm and you must stand firm intersect. Prayer is where the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man meet. Prayer is where we who, who know we must, but we also know we can't, come to the one who, who can and will help us. Th- these things happen through prayer. When we come to God in our weakness and we say, we say we know that you were for us, we know that we're unable, but that you've given us the responsibility to do this, so help us, Lord. And so Paul prays for this church, and, and, and what does he pray for, and who does he pray to? He, he says to, to the Lord Jesus Christ and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. He doesn't just jump straight into his request. He, he remembers who he's praying to. And who is that? To, to put it simply, we pray to the God of grace. We pray to the God of grace. We pray to the God who in his son, Jesus Christ, has loved us. He loved us. He sent his son for us. Jesus died on the cross to demonstrate the love of God for us. When we we see Jesus hanging on the cross in the Scriptures, we recognize that this God has moved toward us in His love. And that He has not left us in our sin, but that He has sought us out, and He has set His love on us and made us known. He loved us through His Son. And And then on the basis of that cross, He's given us eternal comfort and good hope. Think about those words, eternal comfort and good hope. What is eternal comfort? It's it's that assurance we're talking about. It's that assurance of knowing that for all eternity we are His. We belong to Him. A comfort that nothing could ever shake. Good hope. The hope that that we know that one day we're going to be with Him. That that nothing can take that hope away. It's not just just a pie-in-the-sky wish. It's it's a a firm hope that we're going to be with Christ someday. And He's given that to us. How? Through grace. Through grace. Because it's not on the basis of anything we've done, because it's on the basis of what He has done. It's His initiative. It's His choice. It's all God. Even as we were singing earlier, just God is fueling my faith by recognizing that what we're singing about is not ourselves. We're, we're, not, we're not looking to ourselves right now. We're not looking to, to what we can do or, or, or taking pride in ourselves. We, we, are, we are praising the Lamb who was slain for us. Because it's all of grace. And just as God's grace brought us eternal comfort and good hope initially, I think the reason Paul says that is because it's God's grace that brings about the renewed experiences of comfort and hope that we need in this life. Look at what he says. He says that the God who loved us and gave us comfort and hope through grace, may he comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So the, so the God who did this through grace, he's saying, he's saying God continue to do that through grace. Continue to comfort their hearts and, and, and continue to, to bear fruit in their lives. And this is also instructive. What, what does it look like to stand firm? 
What, what does that look like? Paul could have just said, God, I pray that they would stand firm, but instead he prays for what standing firm looks like. And here's what it looks like. If you're standing firm, then, then you're marked by two things. You have, you have a heart that is resting, and you have a life that is working for the glory of God. If you are firm in the faith, that's the, that's the two things that will mark you. You're, you're, you're going you're gonna to be filled with rest in what God has done for you. You're not going to be worried about, about whether you're saved or not. You're not going to be asking questions about, about if, if you've done enough because you know that he's done it all. You're, you're going to have the experience of comfort with you knowing that, that your salvation is based on grace. But you're not just going to be sitting around. That grace is going to fuel you to good works and to good words. It's going to drive you to extend that grace to others. Like we said earlier, it's going to change you from the inside out. That's firmness. And that's what Paul prays for. And so, what, what should we do with this? We should seek his grace, right? We should continually, every day, seek grace from God. And we do that by reflecting on the grace of the gospel and then praying to this God of grace. We cannot miss the place of prayer in this. We know that God can. We know that he is willing. We know that he is able. But God delights to do this when we ask him to do it. He delights to give us grace when we come to him and we say, God, give me grace, please. God, God wants us to take that posture of humility before him. And when we do, he gladly provides all that we need. But if we just rest on just knowledge that he's gracious, but we don't actually come to him and seek that, then he's going to withhold that from us. He's going to, he's going to wait until we, we come and, and, and seek him for it in our life. And, and I should clarify that. I don't, I don't mean to say that God is is waiting on us to make the first move. God will work. God will, God will draw. God will sanctify. But, but God delights to answer our prayers for grace. And that's, that's how we know we can. We, we, God will do this. We will stand firm. We must stand firm. But where do those two things meet? It's when we pray to the God of grace and say, just as you started my salvation by grace, I know you'll finish it by grace. Help me today to stand by grace. The music team can come up as we conclude, and I just want to reiterate these truths for you, church. And before I do, I just want to read from 1 Thessalonians 3. This is what Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 3 to the church. He said, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 3.8, he says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. And I just want you to know, church, that that is my prayer and that is my heart for you this morning now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. That, that's, what, that's what we're praying for God to do, is that each of you would stand firm and would hold on. I'm going to share this last week, but God has changed my prayers from God, relieve us of, of trials, relieve us of suffering. He's changed those to God, give us grace for these trials. Give us grace for these hardships because you call us to stand firm and it's by grace that we will you, you will stand firm because God has saved you by his grace you must stand firm by holding on to the gospel of grace and you can stand firm because God will continue to give you his grace it's all of grace 
And listen to what Paul said. This is the last thing that we're going to do. Read this verse. 1 Corinthians 15.10. This is what Paul said about himself. By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That's so instructive to us. That he's, he's putting forth every effort to stand firm and to do good works and to serve the Lord, but he knows that it's, it's, it's not me. It's God's grace that came to me and is working in me and is working through me. And, and, and in the end, it's going to result to the praise of his glorious grace. When we stand in heaven, we're, going to, we're not going to look at ourselves and what we did. We're going to look at what he did through us. And so let's together just fix our eyes on the grace of God and the confidence that that brings us, that we will stand firm, that we can stand firm. And then let's stand firm together this week.